Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoy the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Well, good evening. And welcome to episode 00053 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'll be your host through to eight this evening. I'd like to start off by acknowledging the uh, land from which I'm broadcasting this evening, the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation, and I pay my respects to them past, present and emerging. Um now, I'm coming to you again from uh, Radio City Docklands, where I'm uh, perched high in my ivory tower to bring you, um, hopefully, what will be another deadly show. I hope you're keeping well. Uh, what a beautiful autumnal day it has been here in Melbourne town. Um, sometimes you can catch yourself thinking that all is well in the world, but, and it's a big but, we, uh, we mustn't forget the devastation that is being wreaked on people everywhere devastation that tears at the fabric of who we are as a nation, the, uh, the, irre- the um, irreparable damage being inflicted on the country by evil forces that are way beyond our control. And there may never be going any going back to how we once were. I'm, of course, talking about the tweet that the Victorian Deputy Chief Health Officer, Dr Annalise Van Diemen, said, sent last week, comparing the devastating impacts of Captain Cook's arrival to the coronavirus COVID-19 pandemic was really a, uh, a truly devastating tweet. It really was. One of the nice things about the uh, global pandemic has been the, hi- the hibernation of the monotonous culture wars. It would seem that um, so many pundits have been sitting around waiting for an opportunity to ignite one furor or another, furor or another, Nothing wrong with igniting a furor either. Um, they were losing traction on the push to open up government schools. Um, they lost that argument against the weight of public opinion and, um, you know, a truckload of common sense. So they've been itching for an issue that would, uh, re- would uh, you know, reduce the need for the sorts of pills that keep them up in times of self-ISO. And uh, Dr Van Diemen gave it to them when they were taking a bit of time out, when she was taking a bit of time out from uh, Saving Society, as we noted. She tweeted, and um, I hope you're sitting down, she tweeted, the sudden arrival of an invader from another land, decimating populations, creating terror, forces the population to make enormous sacrifices and completely change how they live in order to survive COVID-19. Or Cook 1777. And with that, people's heads just exploded. You know, uh, you know, we're in the middle of a, a, a golden, golden period of pandemic, and uh, she goes out and tweets something as devastating as that. I mean, how very dare she? How very dare she indeed? So the, the predictable rants and raves from those who insist that um, they would die to protect freedom of speech. Um, except when the speech doesn't accord with the things that Mrs. McComb taught them in grade three about the history of this country. So we had the opposition here in Victoria um, struggling for relevancy at the moment, calling for the Deputy Health Chief Officer's resignation in the midst of the greatest public health crisis that this country and this state has ever seen. 
There were calls for an inquiry into her tweet. There were suggestions that her comment undermined the uh, public confidence in the health system. Uh, it would seem um, sort of any pretentious, um, any pretension, sorry, to, to, to the way we interact with each other, to try and understand each other in the wake of an event that has turned up so many lives upside down in terms of COVID-19 is uh, now already truly over. We're not even out of self-ISO yet. So once we get back to the some sort of semblance of reality, I'm guessing that the culture wars will kick off again, championed by those that, as Jack Nicholson put it, um, can't handle the truth. Anyway, as for tonight's show, well, the mission is all about truth, as you know, if you're, if you're a regular listener. Um, it's about truth. It's about compassion and understanding. And we're never actually afraid to talk about difficult issues that, um, you know, uh, affect people at the, the, the bottom end of the scale and, and, and the most vulnerable. And so was the case with tonight's show and our wonderful guests. So shortly I'll be joined by Noongar woman and Indigenous rights lawyer and campaigner Roxanne Moore and April Watson, the daughter of Tanya Day, to talk about uh, the Clean Out Prisons campaign. As we all know, by now, COVID-19 was to, um, if it was to get into prisons, it would be disastrous, particularly for Indigenous prisoners, many of whom suffer from pre-existing conditions that make them particularly susceptible to the virus. As per, the best way to connect with me during the show is via Twitter. My handle is at Mr. T.T. James. Uh, this is uh, another self-ISO version of the mission coming to you live from Radio City Docklands. I hope you enjoy. I, I, I thank you again for your support during uh, April Amnesty. The amount of support that came in from our loyal audience and the Triple R community has been absolutely amazing. And in return, I like to think that uh, in times of self-isolation that Triple R is kind of like a satellite of love. Triple R. You're listening to The Mission. My name is Daniel James. Uh, thank you for joining us this evening. Now, listen, we've briefly discussed on this program before the risk of COVID-19 getting into Australian prisons. Once the highly contagious virus gets into a prison, it wreaks havoc both in purely health terms, but also um, in terms of, the, the, I guess, the harmony of, of the prison. Um, there have been riots overseas in prisons that where COVID-19 has actually got in and created all sorts of havoc. So what initially started as a whisper on this issue has now turned into a fully-fledged campaign that is actually show, showing some results, as we've seen today. Um, and it's a campaign to see the release of uh, First Nations prisoners t- um, in order to prevent a new wave of black deaths in custody as a result of what is a preventable health crisis. And it has become known as the Clean Out Prisons campaign. Now, on the line with me, I have um, two tireless campaigners on this and so many other issues on behalf of their community. Roxanne Moore is a Noongar woman, um, a human rights lawyer from Margaret River in Western Australia. She is the executive officer for the National Peak Body on National Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Legal Services, NATSILS. And alongside on the line, and she was only here a few weeks ago, is April Watson, um, like I said, we're very lucky to have it on the show a couple of weeks ago, where we um, spoke briefly, all too bit brief, all too briefly, about the uh, coronial inquest into her mum, Auntie Tanya Day's tragic and totally preventable death in custody back in 2017. 
April and Roxanne, welcome back to the mission. Thank you for having us. Thanks for having us on. Um, I asked you this not long ago, April, so I'll start with uh, Roxanne. Um, How are you and your friends and family holding up uh, during this COVID-19 crisis? Yeah, look, I think it's been, you know, really hard on everyone, um, particularly for our mob, Um, you know, the threat particularly to our elders and um, losing that culture and knowledge and wisdom and just the anxiety around it getting into our communities, I think, Mm. is really strong. And, um, yeah, we've just been really um, working really hard um, with families uh, like April um, to try and make sure that that there's no Aboriginal deaths in custody that come out of this um, or ever again um, because um, our people are more vulnerable to coronavirus and, um, and we know that our mob are more of dying in custody as well. Yeah, there definitely is a um, you know a heightened sense of anxiety you know amongst amongst mob because we just know what can happen if it does. Hopefully, it doesn't um, get into some of our communities, especially amongst our elders. Um, and um, April, where where are you um, coming to from us? Uh, how where are you um, speaking from this evening? Um, I'm actually in Mathara staying with my sister. Um, my daughter's really vulnerable, so it's best that we're sort of out of the city. Yeah, you know, see, oh, I thought I heard you say that when you two were um, chatting amongst yourself. My sister is in Mathara as well. She lives there. So, um, uh, you know, if you see someone with, uh, you know, black curly hair that looks like me and drag, um, say hello. <laughs> <laughs> I will. It's lovely being up here. Yeah, it's a nice spot. It really is. Um, I'll start with you again, April. Um, you and your family put your um, signature to an open letter with um, other community members who have lost loved ones who have died um, in, in custody. Um, why is cleaning out the prisons campaign something um, you're obviously very passionate about? Yeah, well, um, to me personally, um, it comes from the loss of mum and having mm. her be racially profiled and arrested for public drunkenness, which then placed her in a cell and dying. Um, that's been a really painful reminder that, you know, racism and incarceration are really lethal for our people. And really it's, it's just the right thing to do. And like Aboriginal people, you know, we've always had to fight for our survival and advocate for our people and for the ones that are vulnerable. And right now, our people are mass incarcerated at most risk of contracting COVID-19, which is why, you know, I was definitely happy to jump on board and campaign for our people. Yeah, so your signature, along with um, 44 others, um, other family members who have had people die in custody, um, is a is a very powerful statement by itself. Aboriginal people represent roughly 30% of the prison population across Australia, and we only make up about 3% of the overall population in everyday life. Uh, Roxanne, um, of course, it isn't merely a justice issue, it's also a health issue, and Natsals has produced a joint position with the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association um, on this campaign. What have you been asking governments to do and what what breakthrough did you have today out of uh, National Cabinet? 
Yeah, so in terms of um, the Australian Indigenous Doctors Association, they got in touch and they are equally concerned about um, preventing black deaths in custody um, and the risk if coronavirus does get into prisons um, and really from a health perspective um, and that absolute need for um, testing and appropriate medical care for our mob who are in prison because um, we know that throughout the history of death in custody, black death in custody in this country, um, we know that where our mob have medical issues, that their concerns aren't taken seriously and this leads to a lot of death in custody. Um, so it's even more um, important um, and from that health crisis perspective as well. Um, in terms of the announcement today, so National Cabinet have come out and I feel like the voices of the families are being heard. Um, some of the um, calls from the families were made today. Um, so the National Cabinet announced that they're going to um, have plans um, for prison outbreaks of COVID-19. Um, they're going to make sure that protective equipment is worn by prison staff as a priority and they're going to make sure that there's um, support, accommodation and transport for mob who are being released from prison. However, yep. they haven't said that they're going to release mob from prison, which is the number one call from the families. So until that happens, that's the leadership that we need to see to make sure that there won't be any black deaths in custody. Yes, yeah, so I'll just I'll just read from the, um, the the statement from the National Cabinet today, um, in which they have agreed the National Cabinet has agreed that supply of personal protection equipment (PPE) to corrections facilities should be considered a priority in the context of the national supply of PPE as additional supplies become available and if COVID nineteen cases are confirmed in the sector. And then they go on to um, your, uh, your second point, but not all the way. The Australian government will, in partnership with jurisdictions, develop safe travel plans for newly released Indigenous prisoners, including access to self-isolation accommodation and secure transport to designated communities. Now, I guess, I guess um, Roxanne and, and April, the, the rubber really hits the road there because it hits the road when um, uh, states actually agree to that. And we we haven't had any sort of pronouncements from from Victoria in particular yet around that. Are, are you hopeful that um, the states will come to the party on that? Look, I I think that um, it, from our perspective, all Australian governments need to act now, like to immediately release First Nations people from prison. Um, it isn't going far enough. On the one hand, they're recognising that our mob are more vulnerable and that they're agreeing to, um, you know, make, um, you know, transport and accommodation available because our mob are more vulnerable going back to communities. But then they're not doing the biggest action which could actually um, prevent um death in custody for our people from COVID-19, which is actually releasing people. And there have been emergency powers um, passed in New South Wales and ACT, but we haven't heard of any um, people being released. Um, there's also a list being drawn up in the NT of um, people who, who could be released from prison. But at the moment, governments are just like relying on the courts um, and lawyers essentially to get people out on bail and parole. Um, April, not sure if you wanted to add anything on that. 
Yeah, look, for me and how I see it is um, a lot great that they gave us those few little things. I just see it as this is like another tactic that they do where they just pick a box. Mm -hmm. Um, They give us a little bit, but they're not actually acknowledging um, what needs to be done. And they're not, you know, seeing the value of black lives. And we've seen that time and time again, you know, they they give us a royal commission into Aboriginal deaths in custody, but then they're not there making sure that those recommendations are being implemented. They gave us, you know, a promise to abolish public drunkenness, but yet that's still not done and we're still waiting for that to be decriminalised and waiting for a public health alternative. And to me, it's just, it's not good enough. And I guess, April, you, you and your family would know far better than anyone else, that if you have to actually rely on the justice system itself to amend some of these issues around the potential spread of COVID-19 in, in prisons and how that impacts vulnerable prisons, then um, you know that's got to be taken with a grain of salt. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And, you know, they need to recognise that this is coming from Aboriginal families who have lost loved ones um, in prison and in police custody. Um, and, you know, the last thing we want is to be grieving more of our loved ones. And I just think, you know, the best thing to do and to ensure that we're not losing more people is that they hear what we're saying and they release our mob. I am speaking with Roxanne Moore and April Watson about the Clean Out Prisons campaign that aims to get um, Indigenous prisons, Indigenous prisoners out of uh, correctional facilities um, in order to protect them from the spread of the COVID-19 um, virus. Roxanne, do we have any sort of insight into what measures are being taken now by correctional facilities to protect prisoners from the, the virus? Yes, so the response of prisons all over Australia have been really just to go into lockdown. And it's really concerning um, in places like Queensland, for example, where they're saying that where a person in prison has gone into isolation um, for COVID-19 concerns, they're not getting any out-of-cell time. Um, And that's Mm. from their guidelines that they've released. And that's a breach of their human rights and it's against the law. And um, we're really concerned that even in places, um, you know, like Victoria, right around the country, they're introducing measures like um, anyone that's come into prison during the COVID-19 pandemic is going into a quarantine unit um, for several weeks Um, and we're not sure how much access that people are getting to their families, to their lawyers, to their other supports that they need. Um, Mm. You know, that differs from state to state. Um, But the instead of decarceration, which is what is going to really protect mob um, in this pandemic, um, they've gone for lockdown. Yeah, I guess it's, um, you know, just reverting to type, I guess. I mean, I think the thing about about this is that if this, this potential crisis is totally and utterly preventable and um, if if action appropriate action isn't taken then we could have a we could have we could lose generations of uh, aboriginal people in, in prison these people are their, their aunties their uncles their mothers their fathers their their, their, their 
children and siblings of other of um, of other Aboriginal people, of course. And so it's 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 totally preventable. What can Triple R listeners do to help support the campaign, Roxanne? I guess I'll ask you. Well, um, the families have um, joined with Michaela Reynolds, um, who is the sister of Nathan Reynolds, um, who um, died in custody um, from an asthma attack um, mm-hmm. in New South Wales. And um, she has a petition um, and we uh, the families have now joined on with that petition and joined forces so that we can, um, you know, get as much public support behind the family's calls as possible. Um, so I really encourage all listeners to sign the petition. Um, the website to go to is bit.ly, so B-I-T dot L-Y forward slash clean out prisons petition. And um, please take action on social media. Um, we're asking people to take a photo of themselves and soak and the hashtag clean out prisons. Because um, what we're hearing is that um, some mob in prison don't even have access to free soap to be able to wash their hands. And that's just like basic human dignity for people to be able to protect themselves um, from this pandemic. Um, prisons are not safe. Our mob are not safe um, during this pandemic, and that's why we need governments to clean out prisons. Okay, so if we could just have that um, website just one more time, Roxanne, people have had a chance to grab a pen. Yep. Um, so bit.ly forward slash clean out prisons petition. Um, you can also find it if you go to the Aboriginal Legal Services um, webpage, or we're also on Facebook. Um, Facebook um, forward slash clean out prisons so you can find us on there um, and please get involved and share the family's letter and sign the petition and let's get as much support behind the families as we can. Well, thank you so much, both of you, for um, your, your staunchness, your continued ad- continued advocacy on behalf of um, our people and um, thank you so much for your um, time tonight. I really appreciate it. Great. Thank you for having us. No worries. Bye-bye. This is a podcast from Triple R, an independent media organisation in Melbourne, Australia. To find out more about Triple R or to explore many more shows, podcasts, articles, videos and interviews, head to the Triple R website at rrr.org.au. So what I thought I might do is um, I actually wrote an article for last year for Anzac Day and um, I actually did a, um, a voice recording of it just uh, recently. So to take us up before um, it's Charlie time, I thought I might just play play the reading, you know, why not? You know, anything goes, surely. Um, so this is an article about my great-great-grandfather, Percy Pepper. Um, he served in World War One, and um, I recorded it um, uh, last week. It seemed to go down pretty well with uh, the social media mob. So um, I thought I might just play it for you now, and um, I'll see you on the other side. Husband, Dad, Digger. The Aboriginal Anzac, We Fought for Family. Written by Daniel James. Read by the author. The average age of the infantrymen of the 21st Australian Imperial Force Battalion of World War I was 29. Percy Pepper was 38. The first batch of youthfully exuberant enlistments for the Great War had come and gone. Many would stay gone. 
Thousands of men and boys had been shipped off in search of great adventure, only to return in the form of bright pink telegrams to notify families of their ultimate sacrifice for king and for country. The young fellows were away to have a crack. The whole show was turning out to go on longer than everyone expected. It was time that men of more mature years headed across to lend them a hand. Among them, Private Percy Pepper, service number 5677. It wasn't Percy's age that was the distinguishing feature of his service, nor was it that he lost his third and fourth fingers on his left hand in an accident on the wharf in Sale back in 1907. It was the fact that he was one of 800 Aboriginal men to enlist and serve during the Great War. And as such, Percy's shipment to the Western Front would be yet one more battle in a life often consumed by fighting forces beyond his control. He was forced to denigrate himself with such descriptors to deal with the board and the swathes of red tape and public servants that would pester him and his family's mere existence. He was forced to label his genetic makeup under the Act, the infamous Aborigines Protection Act of 1915. It was the Act and its various iterations that would govern Percy's life and the life of many generations to come. The Act was there so the clerks and bureaucrats knew exactly what type of Aborigine they were dealing with. The Aboriginal Protection Board think the bureaucracy of the NDIS pile on the racism and disdain of clerks for Aboriginal people and add a three or four week lag for every request, whether it be for a train ticket to visit family or a new pair of woolen socks to get yourself through the winter. A half-caste would fall under the protection of the board. It was the clerk's job to determine whether the half-caste were able to live on their own land, spend time with their full-blood brothers and sisters, uncles and aunties. They would either approve or disallow whether Aboriginal people could spend time in their culture. The answer was usually no. It was the Act of 1915 that would more than ever rigidly assert the government's authority to further erode connection to traditional life. There was no science in their method. Life-altering and culture-fraying decisions were made on the basis of the shade of people's skin. Under the Act, a clerk's job was to protect by destroying culture, severing any connection one may have had with it. It was the clerks and the administrators that were the custodians of cultural genocide, and they performed the task politely and efficiently. It was a time in which a clerk's pen could be as lethal as the Hun's bullet. Nine years prior to his embarkment to Plymouth on the HMAAT Stropshire, the fate of Percy's wife, Lucy Pepper, Nee Thorpe, suffering from tuberculosis, was in the hands of such clerks to get a train ticket from Lake Tyres to Broadmeadows to receive advanced treatment for her condition. Percy, having just lost two fingers in a work accident 21 years before the invention of penicillin, was laid up in a hospital pleading for help from the board via his mission manager, John Bulmer. He wrote, Dear Sir, I have just received a letter from Lucy. She's in hospital again. The doctors told her she would have to go away to the sanitarium in Broadmeadows, about 13 miles from Melbourne. Well, Mr Bulmer, I'm not able to get to her in that place, and the doctor says she can get treatment there, and that it will probably cure her. It is that outdoor treatment. I would like to get her away as soon as possible, as every week she is getting worse. 
I'm going to ask if you can get me a pass to take her down, as I cannot do much work as my fingers have not yet healed. I will be out Sunday to see you and let you know everything, as I'm going into sale tomorrow. Alice has a typhoid fever, and Billy has gone up and he's bad again. I'm just up to my eyes in trouble. I've nothing more to say, hoping you will be able to help me in some way. Yours trustworthy, Percy Pepper. Excuse writing in pencil. This time, in a merciful gesture, the clerks approved the permission to receive basic treatment. There are dozens and dozens of letters from Percy and Lucy to administrators or letters from administrators pertaining to their family. He was indeed gayfully employed in support of his wife and seven children. So when the Great War came and he had the chance to serve under the same paying conditions as white soldiers, it may have been an offer too good to refuse. It was also an opportunity for acceptance. Surely to honourably serve one's country would sweep away much of the discrimination endured by him and his family. Half-castes were permitted in the army, as outlined in the booklet, Instructions to Army Recruitment Officers. Full-bloods were forbidden from serving the country that was trying to eradicate them. Half-castes would assimilate easier, be less of an irritant to their would-be brothers-in-arms, look a little bit more European. There was a proviso, though. Half-castes that were raised by full-blooded Aborigines would not be allowed to serve. The inherent mistrust of Aboriginal people may have been born out of a suspicion by the army of the potential actions of its own personnel. Or it could have been an echoic murmur from the frontier wars, some of which were still being fought. Whatever the motive was, it was racist. How the Aboriginal men that served in the war quietly held their dignity, their culture, in the fear and alarm of the voyage and the battles that they would fight before fighting on the front line is worthy of our respect, lest we forget. Little is known about the day-to-day goings-on of Percy's life during his active service on the Western Front. We know what conditions were like on the line, the mud, the blood, the dysentery, the seemingly never-ending bombardments from both sides, the armaments flying overhead, the sky on fire, trenches full of water, water soured by death. We also know his battalion saw some of the fiercest battles of that theatre of war. The Battle of Armines, the Battle of Prozieres, and the German Spring Offensive, just to name a few. But it was in or around the time of the Battle of Braunenside Ridge that Private Pepper received shrapnel wounds to the head, all in the service of a country that barely tolerated his existence at all. If Percy was a hero, then Lucy was as much a heroine. For the time Percy was in the military... Lucy, in poor and fading health, would stay put and look after their seven kids. She would keep the family together, away from the lurking authorities and judgmental do-gooders. A miraculous feat that deserves its own writing. Her legacy should not be diminished, and it won't. In London, Percy would recover from his wounds and continue to serve in the army until August 1918, before being granted permission to return home and care for the ailing Lucy. In a memo to his superiors, he wrote, Would it be possible for me to please be returned to Australia? I have received advice that my wife is very ill. In consequence of the injury to my head and chronic rheumatism, I am quite useless at times and have to lie down. I am 40 and a half years of age and have seven children. I do not necessarily ask for my discharge, but desire to be near my wife owing to her condition of health. Would you please return letters to me? 
signed P. Pepper, 14th of May, 1918. Discharge was granted. Percy's war was over, but his battles would go on. He was granted a soldier settlement at Cooey Rupp, a drained swamp. The mud of France had been replaced by the mud of Gippsland. He would try and make a go of farming the land until Lucy died in 1923, at the age of 39. In a final act of cruelty, the clerks had refused her burial on country at Lake Ties to be laid to rest with her mother and father. Percy would live to 1956 and would continue to be a role model and a beloved grandfather to many, including my grandmother, Patricia. It is through the relentless and patient grace of Percy and Lucy that me and many others are here today. Lest we forget. Back live now from uh, Radio City Docklands. Uh, sort of puts things in perspective. They survived World War I, um, a government and bureaucrats that were trying to kill them, and the Spanish flu. So, um, you know, think about that next time we're sitting on our couch and um, feeling a little bit down. Um, thank you again for tuning in, um, and thank you to uh, to April and to Roxanne for their commitment to what is a very important issue. So until next week, have a good one. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. <laughs>